For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Well, I don't know if you ever write letters these days or whether you just email and text people when it comes to communication, but a, a couple of months ago, we moved house as a family. And as often is the way, we went through a process of having to chuck out a bunch of stuff. And one of the jobs, one of the jobs I had to do is I had to get up in our loft and go through some boxes of cards and letters that I had kept from over the years. And in particular, I found some letters uh, from when I was 21 years old and I was working abroad in a school in India, so that's about 10 years ago. Uh, I'm joking. And I wish. And these were letters that were sent to me from friends and family, which were pretty much the only communication I had with the kind of my, my home life. And they would come through to me most weeks and they were a bit of a lifeline. And it was amazing, if you like, the emotions and memories that came flooding back as I read these letters. Now, I mentioned that right at the start of this message because it's really important to remember when we read a book like Ephesians, this is a letter. Paul is writing to people that he cares about, that he feels responsible for, and that he cannot physically be with at this time. Now, if you and I were writing a letter to people we care about and people we can't physically be with, I wonder what we would say, particularly what we would say at the start. I imagine, if you're like me, that you would share some news, you'd give a bit of information, you may also, if you're writing in these days, give some instructions. You say, be careful, wear a mask, remember to wash your hands, be safe out there. You'd say all these things, all of which would be relevant. But it's interesting to see what Paul says right at the start of this letter and this section of the letter that we've just looked at. Because in verse 15, Paul jumps in and says these amazing words. For this reason, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now today we're going to look at these verses and we're going to ask the question, what can we learn about prayer? What does God want to say to us through what Paul writes here about prayer? But I want to suggest to you that Possibly one of the most important things we can learn about prayer, certainly one of the most challenging things I think about prayer, is here right at the start, if you like, in the transition from verse 14 to verse 15. And, and this is it. It's very simple, but I think it's very, very profound and challenging. And this is it. That what you see here in this passage 
is that Paul himself truly believes that prayer and that praying for his friends, the people he loves that he can't be with, is the most important thing he can do for them. That praying is the most helpful, the most effective thing he can do. It makes all the difference in the world. And it's not that the Bible doesn't go on and Paul doesn't say elsewhere about physical things that are important to do, how we should care for one another and be active towards one another. That's absolutely right as well. It's just that it would seem that Paul is teaching and modelling and believing that prayer is the most important and central thing he can do for his friends that he's writing to. Now, I can imagine if you're like listening to this message right now, you may be sitting there thinking, okay, Phil, yeah, I know that already. You know, let's move on. Tell me something I don't know. But just for a moment, I want you to stay here with me because I want you to think and sense how challenging that view is. Because Paul doesn't just do this here. If you read some of his other letters, you read, for example, Philippians and Colossians. This is exactly how he starts those letters as well. He starts right in on saying, I've been praying for you. I want you to know I've been praying for you. So Colossians 1, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And Philippians 1 verse 3, I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I don't think Paul there is just doing, if you like, some kind of cultural norm that this is the kind of thing he should say at the start of the letter. I think Paul is expressing here his belief that prayer is central, it's primary, it is foundational and fundamental when it comes to the life of a Christian and what we should and could do for one another. And the reason I think this is so challenging, and I just want us to sort of stay here for a moment, is because most of the Christians I know, and I include myself in this, want to learn how to pray, we want to pray more, but the truth is we often struggle to pray. And maybe this is my own view and you might differ on this, but often I think the biggest struggle or one of the biggest struggles we have with prayer is not that we don't know what to pray for or we don't even know sometimes how to pray. Our biggest struggle is fundamentally that we don't sometimes think we even need to pray. Or if we did pray, we're not convinced that much will change. And that we are prone to or can be prone to treating God more like a consultant that we draw in occasionally to, when we need a little bit of help to sort ourselves out, but basically we are, we, we're handling it. Or as a crisis call on a last ditch moment where we've run out of options and we call on God and we treat him as a consultant or someone that we call in a crisis rather than, if you like, a saviour or my commander in chief that I want to go to because I have to know what he thinks and I have to connect with him. Tim Keller, if you know Tim Keller, who's an American pastor and author, has written a great book on prayer. And uh, he talks in his book about the challenge that he felt to his own prayer life when his wife, Kathy, challenged him about the lack of prayer they did together as a couple. And this is what she said to him uh, that he quotes in his book. She says to Tim, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine. A 
pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget, you would never miss. Well, if we don't pray together to God, she said, we're not going to make it because of all we are facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it slip, just slip out of minds. And Keller goes on to say these words. Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. We have to. I want to suggest to you or say to you that if you want to grow in your prayer life, if, like me, sometimes you find out a struggle, this is where we have to start. We have to be able to genuinely answer the question in our own hearts as to why we should pray. With the answer, I believe, that I need to learn how to pray because the Bible teaches me that ultimately prayer is the most critical way by which I get to experience and see God move in my life and through my life. It's not that I don't have things to do and a part to play, absolutely, but everything I do and my part needs to be built on a foundation of praying and communing with God. Now, if that's why we should pray, I want you to see a a very similar profound challenge when it comes to what we should pray, because Paul models something to us here, again, about what he prays. And again, it is challenging because it is often so different to, I think, what we primarily pray. So verse 17, he says these words. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, I don't know what the main themes are of your prayer life, but I suspect if you're like me, it's more, God help me. God intervene. God, please change this. Please provide. And I want to say there's nothing wrong with that kind of prayer because the Bible clearly uh, shows us that that is appropriate as well. Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, what's become known as the Lord's Prayer, that we should ask for our daily bread. So asking for help and provision is appropriate. But it is only one aspect of prayer. And it's not, if you like, here what Paul models as his primary way of praying. The central theme of what he prays is not God change this or help me or help them or change their conditions. What he prays centrally is this, Father, more than anything else, I'm asking that they might know you better. I'm asking that the eyes of their heart may be aligned, they might have revelation in order that they may know you better than they do right now. Show them again who you are and therefore who they are. So what you see in Ephesians 1 straight off the bat, if you like, is before he does anything in terms of instructing them or giving them advice or dispensing wisdom, all of which has its place, he prays 
because he believes that this is the most important thing he could do for his friends, is to pray for them. That's a huge challenge for you and I when we think of our friends and our family and the people we care about, is what do we do for them? Well, Paul, first off, he goes, the most important thing I can do is pray. And then when he does pray, he prays this, Father, show them who you are. And again, he doesn't just do this here in this passage. He does it elsewhere in the New Testament. Philippians 1, again, he says this, this is my prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depths of insight. So you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Colossians 1 again, he says this, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. So committed, I'm going to pray for you. We continually ask, notice again, I'm going to keep going. We're going to come back to that. To ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So I'm praying, God, fill them with all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Why does Paul pray like this? Well, I believe implicitly the reason he prays like this, and I think it's in this passage implicitly, is that he is saying, listen, there is a life and a joy and a peace and a hope and a contentment which comes from a far deeper place than simply the circumstance and conditions of your life. It comes actually from the condition and circumstances of your heart, that we were made to know God and to walk with him, to live our lives absolutely in step with him, and that there is a joy and a peace and a life which flows from knowing God that we start to experience when we first become a Christian and we reorbit our life and say to God, I'm going to follow you. I want to make you saviour and lord of my life. Please come into my life. There's a joy and a life which flows when we get in line and in step with God that we could never experience or extract from simply, if you like, the external circumstances and conditions of our lives. So Paul is saying, this is the most important thing I can pray for you. I want them to know you. And he's not just saying I want them to intellectually kind of assent to the truth and kind of conceptually kind of get their heads around it. He's saying, no, no, I want them in their heart, open the eyes of their heart. I want them to know deep inside these truths about who you are, Father. I want them to see it again and therefore who they are in light of who you are. It's like the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just understand intellectually, but taste that God is good. I um, recently visited the opticians in Catford and it was a little bit of a humbling moment of uh, realising and acknowledging again that I'm growing a bit older. And uh, this was not only because when I was there, the guy who served me basically said, you need reading glasses in order to help you see. And I'm like, oh, no, I know that. But he told me the truth. But really what illustrated to me the fact that I was growing older was that the guy who served me looked to me about 13 years old. Now, he was really nice, very good at his job. And if he does happen to be watching this talk today, I'm sorry if I'm offending you. You were brilliant, by the way. But to me, he looks so young. I'm like, shouldn't you be in school? Does your mum know you're here? Is this a Saturday job? But anyway, he did his tests and he told me, uh, your eyes need some help. If you want to see clearly, they need some help. And I guess... Physically, what I'm experiencing and whatever many people experience with our own physical eyes is spiritually what we all experience. 
in order for us to know God and to see him and to see him again, we need help. We, we can't do that ourselves. We can't make ourselves experience God. Left to our own devices, God is a concept, if you like, that we struggle to get our heads around. But by his spirit, and this is what Paul is praying, by his spirit, he comes and reveals to us the reality that God is real, that he's with us, that we are not alone, that we're loved, that there's a hope and there is a future and that eternity is real. And he has to show us again those truths so that we see it in our hearts and it spills out, therefore, into the way we live our lives. And that's not something we just need to see once. It is something that happens when we become a Christian. God reveals who he is to us and we, we come to him and repent and bow the knee and say we want to live for you. But it is also something that God needs to keep doing again and again and again because we forget who he is. And we so easily stop seeing who he is. And that is why Paul prays again and again and again. I'm praying for you that God will show you who he is. Over the last few months, really kind of since March, actually, Sarah and I most weeks have gone for a walk in Greenwich Park. And Greenwich Park, I think, is one of my favourite parks in London. And it probably has one of my favourite views of London, which is where you stand at the top of the hill and many of you, I guess, will live near Greenwich Park and you'll know this view and you look down to the river and you can see across the Canary Wharf and over to the city and it is an amazing view of this fantastic city that we get to live in. At the same time over the last few months, I've also at times run to Greenwich. Not very quickly, but I have run there, all the way from my house down to the river and then back up the hill and home. Now, the reason that Greenwich Park has a fantastic view over the city is because it has a massive hill. And you don't realize how massive it is until you are running home the other way. When you're running home up the hill, the hill is long, it's hard, it's draining, it's monotonous, and the view when you're running home is not that great because all you can really see is the hill and occasionally your feet and you can just hear your breathing. It's not a great view or a great experience. Now I say that because I guess uh, as we enter autumn and winter in this very strange season, and we think about what life is gonna be like over these next few months, I have a feeling that for many of us at times, there will be days when it feels like we are slogging our way up a big hill. There will be days when we need to kind of resilience, faith, when we're going to need to hold on to promises that we can't always necessarily feel. We're going to need one another to help each other because our vision, if you like, on those days will easily be filled with the struggle, with the hill we feel like we're climbing. And the struggle sometimes in life, and particularly in this season, can be real and hard. But crucially, I want to say to you, when we are in the struggle, maybe you feel there right now, maybe you're in a season given everything and all the potential limitations and the limitations we're already facing, it feels like a struggle. It feels like you are slogging up a hill that's not ending. Crucially, when you're there in the struggle, I want to say to you um, that prayer, perhaps more than anything else, is the key to turning around and realising the view of the city is still there. Prayer helps us turn around 
and realize and see again that there is still an amazing view behind us in the backdrop. You see, in this letter, Paul begins a letter, and Andrew kind of mapped this out for us a couple of weeks ago, with describing really an incredible landscape of grace, this remarkable backdrop of grace that belongs to everybody who's a believer. So he talks about, you know, that we've been predestined and adopted and chosen and redeemed and forgiven, lavished literally with grace, that there is a backdrop and a landscape of grace. And he goes on to describe in, in the next few verses, some of the verses that we've already heard read, that there's hope, that there is power, that there is inheritance, if you like. That's our view. And he's not just describing this in Ephesians 1 simply as something theological that he wants his friends to understand intellectually or conceptually. He's describing for them something that he wants them to know deep inside of them, to taste, to experience, because he's not talking about a view that's somehow disconnected from them. He's talking about them. You see, when you stand in Greenwich and you look over the river and you see the view, you're not doing it as a tourist. You're looking at the city that you're a part of and that you live in. This is where you live. This is part of you, in other words. And Paul is saying, I want you to see this incredible view of grace and mercy and redemption and inheritance and future and hope. I want you to understand your inheritance, not as some concept, but I want you to know you belong in that. That's yours. It belongs to you. That's where you live. It won't always feel like it's where you live when you're slogging up the hill, but I want you to turn and pray and ask this. I'm asking the Spirit to remind you this is who you are and this is where you live and that's what your future will be. So yes, there's going to be days when we struggle and it feels like the hill is never ending. But if you will stop, I believe God says, if you will turn around, if you will face the other way, I will remind you that you belong to something much greater than your circumstance, that you belong to someone much bigger and greater than this hill and this challenge, that there's hope, that there's power, there's a future for you, and you are already included in it. And prayer is the discipline by which we turn around and face the other direction. Now, when we think of it like that, you think, well, who wouldn't want this? We would all want this, but the reality is, most of us find this really hard. The truth is we find it hard to turn and pray. Almost everyone I know finds it hard. The disciples found it hard. That's why they had to say to Jesus, teach us how to pray. They'd been taught as kids how to pray in the Jewish tradition. They're still saying to him, show us how to pray. Why is it hard? Well, I don't know the full answer to that, but maybe I've got a thought to kind of leave you with on that one. I think one of the biggest hurdles we have to knowing God and walking with him is our own addiction to our own self-reliance, our self-sovereignty, our self-sufficiency, where we think we don't really need God. That's why when we come to God, we have to surrender. And maybe God allows prayer sometimes to be hard at times, and we have to search for him at times, because ultimately he is so committed to changing us, to healing us and freeing us, and if you like, weaning us off the myth that life works on our own. And every time we turn and face the other direction, we are putting to death something of the addiction to our own self-sufficiency and self-reliance. It's a defiant act, if you like, of our, against our own self-sufficiency. We are saying to God, I trust you and I'm going to turn and look at you. And that's why every time we pray, it involves trust. Because every time we pray, we're saying to God, I'm trusting you for these next 5, 10, 15 minutes that everything I talk to you about right now 
is more valuable and more will get done than I could do running around on my own. Now, as we close, I want to just say two or three really practical things straight out of this passage. The first one is this. We always need to keep prayer in its rightful place. See, Paul talks about there's a hope and there's a future and there's an inheritance. He's saying, and these things belong to you. I'm praying that the, the, the Father, by his Spirit, will reveal them to you, that they are yours. Notice prayer never qualifies us for those things. Prayer is only there that by his Spirit, God reveals to us that we are already, if you like, in the city. We, they already belong to us. Prayer dies, it's deathly if we make it something that we do as some kind of qualification that somehow we think God is more pleased with us because we prayed. Only the blood of Jesus qualifies us. But prayer is the doorway by which we see again who God is, who we are, and what he has achieved for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we must keep prayer in its right place. Here's another really simple thing. Paul keeps saying, I keep asking, I keep asking, I continually ask. There is something about persistence and not giving up in prayer, which is key. Again, I don't know why sometimes it has to be like that, but I do have a little thought, which is this. I think that God is not just interested in what we're praying. He's interested in what he can do to us and in us and change about us whilst we pray. So as we keep coming, as we keep asking, as we keep coming before him, we are continually giving God the opportunity to do something in us and change us as we come to him. So don't give up praying. Keep going. Paul says, I'm keeping on asking, and that's what you and I have to do. It's just part of the way it works. And thirdly and finally this, when you pray, bring to God genuinely the people and the things on your heart. See, Paul is praying for people he loves. And sometimes we struggle with prayer because we pray for the things and things we think we ought to pray for, but really we have very little interest in. And I want to say it's okay to pray for the things which concern you and the people that you care about, which are on your heart. Because as you do that and you allow God access to your heart, God will change your heart so that other people and other things also become things you care about. So God meets you as you are as you pray for the things and the people you care about. But he doesn't leave you as you are. He will change you and change the things and the people you care about as you pray. Dallas Willard, a famous American author, says this words, prayer simply dies from efforts to pray about good things that honestly do not matter to us. The way to get to meaningful prayer for those good things is to start by praying for what we are truly interested in. The circles of our interests will inevitably grow in the largeness of God's love. Many people have found impossible, prayer impossible because they thought they should only pray for wonderful remote needs that they actually had little or no interest or even knowledge of. So keep praying, keep prayer in its rightful place. It's a doorway to knowing God and pray for the things which matter most and allow God to change you as you pray that he changes your heart so that you have a heart for other things beyond yourself and the people you know in your most inner circle. I'm praying for you this week. I'm praying that God will help you pray and that the Spirit will reveal more and more of who he is and who the Father is and what Jesus' his death and resurrection has achieved for you and me.